The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So basically, what McConnell is trying to do is to push all of the political responsibility for voting to address the debt limit on to Democrats um, by saying you have this opportunity, this mechanism by which you can do this, um, raise the debt limit without um, needing any hope for help from Republicans. And we are going to try and force you to do that. It's all just a giant sort of Gordian knot that needs to be untangled in some way, lest we incur really the massively negative consequences of defaulting on the debt. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 22nd, 2021. It's been a while since we checked in with the first branch of government, but Congress, which has been on recess for the month of August, has a lot on its plate. The January 6th committee is starting to receive information, and it has gone into stealth mode. What's it up to? If Congress doesn't get its act together, the government is going to shut down, and we're going to default on the federal debt. What's up with that? And are we really heading to a disaster? And there's actually been some oversight hearings recently. We decided to check in on it all with Molly Reynolds and Quinta Jurassic, both of the Brookings Institution and both senior editors of Lawfare. They joined me in the virtual jungle studio to see what Congress has been doing, what's coming down the pike, and whether we are headed for one disaster or another. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 22nd. What's up at Congress with Quinta Jurassic and Molly Reynolds? So let's start with the January 6th committee. It started with a bang a few Uh, weeks ago over the summer, held its first hearing, got a lot of attention. Then it issued some document requests. And since then, I haven't heard anything from it. Quinta, get us started. Do you have a sense of where they are and when we might expect them to start doing stuff in public again? I don't have any sense of the timeline for when they might reemerge in public. But I should say that they haven't been totally quiet either. They've done some staff hiring. They have a Twitter account. They've been tweeting and trying to counter statements by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, trying to sort of cut the committee down. But I do think that the the record requests are really important. And I, I kind of wonder if the reason that we haven't 
heard that much from the committee since they issued the record requests in August is that the requests were pretty massive. So they asked for a lot of information from various government agencies, including the FBI, DOJ, DOD. They issued a just a truly huge request to the National Archives and Records Administration for documents from the Trump White House. So for example, one of the requests is all documents and communications relating in any way to remarks made by Donald Trump or other persons on January 6th. That's pretty broad. So I would imagine, I think there's been some reporting that uh, NARA is now working through those records requests. And that's going to be interesting because the administration has to potentially run information that could raise privilege concerns by former President Trump, which we can talk about this later, but that could set up uh, potentially a legal battle over whether or not the committee gets to see this information. They've also requested a variety of records from a number of different social media platforms, including Facebook, Gab, Parler, TikTok. And they've asked a big group of telecommunications companies to preserve records related to the attack. And there's been reporting from CNN and others that those records preservation requests have to do with communications from members of Congress, including Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Matt Gates, Ivanka Trump, uh, Donald Trump Jr. So... There's a lot of information that they're either expecting or sort of maybe sifting through. So we're recording on uh, September 21st. Yesterday, September 20th, a reporter with NBC tweeted out that Benny Thompson, who is chairing the committee, said that the committee could begin issuing subpoenas to individuals and organizations, that's the language in the tweet, within a week. So it may well be that they're kind of figuring out what to do with the information they have and gearing up to push for even more information soon. Yeah, I think that's right. Quinta just pointed out that we are recording this on the 21st. Um, There's some reporting out today that quotes um, Adam Schiff saying the committee is thinking about sort of going straight to subpoenas for some potentially recalcitrant witnesses. So for folks who don't sort of necessarily pay attention to the ins and outs of congressional oversight. Traditionally, when a congressional committee wants to hear from a witness or get a set of documents from an executive agency or really any um, outside entity, and there's some resistance to participating, we don't Often the committee does not go straight to a subpoena. They try to um, work out an accommodation of sorts. And if you watched the the ongoing dispute that produced the Supreme Court's ruling in uh, the Mazars case last summer, that's the same sort of the, the process that we're talking about. So, you know, there is some indication that the uh, January 6th Select Committee is kind of getting ready to go right to the subpoena stage to try and um, speed things up. I do think, um, as just to sort of restate a point that that Quinto was making, in some ways it's not surprising that we've kind of seen the committee enter a less public stage in their work. Um, really, any investigation, certainly an investigation 
of the complexity that this one stands to be. You know, there's going to be kind of a lot of behind the scenes work. There's also um, some indication that the select committee is getting some information shared with it by other congressional committees who were investigating what happened on January 6th before the select committee got started. The, the same story from Politico that, that quotes Schiff is talking about the subpoenas, also mentions that the House Oversight Committee has um, shared some, some transcripts of interviews that it had done connected to the insurrection on January 6th with the Select Committee. So again, it's not surprising that we've sort of gone into a, into a less public phase, but I do think that the question is sort of when does the committee emerge back into a more public phase, particularly given what Quinto was talking about before in terms of a projected possible timeline for when um, the committee wants to wrap up its work. And Molly, do we have any sense of the volume of material that has so far been produced, if any? Or is this, we know they've issued these giant production requests and we know that they're contemplating moving quickly to subpoenas, perhaps as early as next week. But we don't know if that means that by and large, they're receiving large amounts of information and a few people are holding out, or whether it means that broadly they're not getting information yet and they're getting frustrated. Yeah. I don't have a great answer to that question. Um, Quinta may have a better one, um, as I think we'll talk about over the course of the rest of this episode. Um, There's a lot going on on Capitol Hill right now. (laughs) So this may be something that there is a sense of, and uh, it just hasn't crossed my radar as I've been furiously paying attention to other things um, happening in Congress. But I don't have a great sense of that. Quinta, do you? I don't particularly. So the committee has said that they have begun receiving information. They sent a tweet on September 9th saying, with several hours to go between before today's deadline, the select committee has received thousands of pages of documents in response to our first set of requests. Our investigative team is actively engaged to keep that flow of information going. I mean, thousands of pages sounds like a lot. I don't know what is contained in those thousand pages, which it seems like it kind of makes a difference, you know, what, what the substance is there. But they're definitely, you know, trying to present themselves as plugging away. All right. So, Quinta, you mentioned some staffing moves by the committee. You know, we're talking about ultimately potentially millions of pages here. Who's going to read them? That is a a great question. And I actually, the staffing issues I had in mind were not related to the question of what poor staffer was going to have to sort through those millions of pages, but rather the hiring of a, a senior investigative counsel. So the the committee announced that it hired John Wood, who's a former U.S. attorney and senior official in the Bush administration. I would imagine that the committee is going to need a pretty significant staff operation, as you say, to really get this moving. That's all the more true just because, again, I think it's really worth driving home just how massive and expansive the records request to NARA was. And, you know, if I were the committee, I would want to have staff working with NARA to get those records to them just because there's so much to sort through. It's kind of impossible for me to see how NARA would be able to do it on its own. That said, I do think I should have mentioned earlier that Benny Thompson said in one interview, also in Politico, that the committee was hoping to 
see the end of its investigation in uh, early spring of this coming year. So that's the spring of 2022. If that's their goal, I will just say that I hope they're hiring a lot of staff, like a lot of staff, because they're going to have a huge amount to work through in a very short amount of time. Yeah, just one other thing to sort of underscore um, that uh, that possible um, timeline for completing the work is that it's not obviously just that there's a huge volume of information that's been requested. It's that there are a lot of potential controversies about getting that information. And Quinta mentioned some of this earlier in terms of potential privilege claims from the Trump administration. But there are, you know, real questions about sort of what the Biden administration's position on some of these requests is going to be because of concerns about setting precedent for the future um, around uh, how easy it should be for Congress to access information from the executive branch. You know, I I am of the mind that we've gotten to a point where the executive branch has too much ability to stonewall Congress in its pursuit of information to do oversight. But there are hard questions and it's not it's not automatically the case that everything that Congress is seeking in this um, investigation is going to come to it easily. And that's not just because of what former President Trump and other former Trump administration officials might do. Before we move on to other subjects, I want to ask one more staffing question. It is also the case, I believe, that the committee has brought on former Republican congressman Denver Riggleman in some capacity as a consultant or as a, I'm not sure what his formal status is. It seems to me between that and the Woods hire, you know, bringing on a Republican uh, staff council, senior council, they really are trying to make at least at the staff level something of a display of bipartisanship I'm curious, whichever of you wants to take this, whether that's flying, the combination of the two Republicans whom Nancy Pelosi appointed to the committee itself, including the vice chair and the staff, or whether this is kind of performative bipartisanship that is actually masking a wholly democratic operation. So I guess I'd say two things. One is that there is reporting um, on kind of a a burgeoning, really positive relationship between Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney, um, who is the the vice chair of the committee. And, you know, maybe that's reporting that's kind of meant to get all of us to continue to um, talk about this as as a bipartisan effort, because there are Republicans on the panel, even though they had to be put there by um, Nancy Pelosi. And the other thing I would say is that I think the value of trying to have some bipartisanship, both by having two Republicans appointed by Pelosi and then having some Republican staff is there's a like there's a genuine but narrow audience for that that bipartisanship. And it's not by and large the rest of the House Republican conference, but it is, I think, important. That's my impression as well. I mean, I'll point to the same Politico piece that Molly did. Um, There's lots of quotes from committee members in it, including one that I thought was really telling from Representative Jamie Raskin, who's a Democrat, saying of the January 6th committee, quote, this is really how a legislative committee should operate. 
we don't engage in constant partisan crossfire and polemical attacks on one another. And then he went on to say that the collegiality, quote, does give you a glimpse of what we could do if we didn't have one wheel stuck in the mud. (laughs) So um, there definitely seems to be a sense that sort of the agreement among members of and staffers of the on the committee that what they're doing is really important and something that doesn't have to do with partisanship seems at least from the reporting that's out there to be working. I should note before we go on to discuss other topics, while we're talking about staffing matters, it is worth flagging one minor staffing controversy that seems to have kind of vanished. The early on the committee hired David Buckley, um, who was the inspector general of CIA previously as a senior staff member. And basically immediately after that hiring, civil liberties groups, uh, transparency groups, some journalists started sort of saying, whoa, what are you doing there? Because there are complaints against Buckley during his time as CIA IG for whistleblower retaliation in that office. Um, And there was briefly kind of a little bit of a press fear over it. A lot of articles a lot of folks saying that Buckley should step down, that the committee shouldn't have hired him. I haven't seen anything new about that recently. Um, so it seems like it it may have spluttered out. But I do think that it's it's worth flagging since we are talking about how well the committee has done staffing up. Indeed. So by the time the committee holds its first hearing if the current trajectory or its second hearing, if the current trajectory keeps up, uh, the United States will have defaulted on the federal debt and the government will be shut down. So I, we're not quite there yet. Uh, I actually don't know when. Um, it was trying to be dramatic, Molly, to set up. I know, but my my whole job here is to um, to keep uh, to keep the drama in check or inject the drama where appropriate. Fair enough. So let me formulate what was going to be the uh, introduction to the question as a question. How far are we both temporarily and in terms of likelihood of happening from disaster and what sort of action would by whom would be necessary to avert said disasters? Sure. So again, it is September 21st, um, and there are two looming deadlines for Congress where there are kind of big negative consequences if they don't act. One is the end of the federal fiscal year, which is on September 30th. If Congress does not pass what's called a um, Continuing resolution, a short-term stopgap spending bill to keep federal programs running uh, past the start of the new fiscal year. We would see a partial government shutdown um, on October 1st. The other deadline, which is significantly more consequential, is when the Treasury Department exhausts what are called extraordinary measures to keep the U.S. from defaulting on its debt. One of the things that is a little tricky about addressing the debt limit is that unlike the spending bill, there is not a hard, firm deadline um, where we all know that there is a black and white date at which uh, by which action needs to be taken. Most people who um, try to project this um, have said that sometime in sort of mid to late October, so about a month from now, uh, is what sometimes we refer to as the X date, the date by which um, action needs to be taken in order to um, avoid default. And so 
at present, Democrats in Congress are still kind of married to, at least publicly, to a strategy whereby these two uh, bills that I've just mentioned, something addressing the debt limit and something keeping the government open past September 30th, are linked. Um, They have said that they want to pass a temporary spending bill that also addresses the debt limit. The challenge uh, is that to do that, they need Republican votes in the Senate. And Mitch McConnell, up till now, has continued to say that Republicans in the Senate are not interested in helping Democrats raise the debt limit. This is a pretty um, sort of classic McConnell move in that he has uh, historically um, been willing to vote to raise the debt limit and has, in fact, said that Congress must raise the debt limit, but also has said that it is up to um, to Democrats to do so Just and has sort of claimed that it is because Democrats want to incur massive amounts of additional debt as part of their kind of legislative agenda, despite the fact that, you know, raising the debt limit now is about being able to pay um Bills that the government has already incurred, um, not new things that are coming down the road. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Before we go into exit ramps, I want to flesh out the nature of the of the dispute. Because as mm-hmm. as you've described it, this really has nothing to do with the ongoing dispute between Democrats and Republicans and between Democrats and Democrats over either the three and a half trillion dollar investment slash taxes slash spending package or the bipartisan infrastructure bill that has already passed the Senate, except in the sense that Mitch McConnell is linking them. Is that right that, you know, if if we were just talking here about the two bills that need to pass, a continuing resolution to keep the government open and the a debt limit bill, you could pass those tomorrow and just keep working on the other stuff? As a fiscal matter, raising the debt limit now is about making sure that the United States is able to um, fulfill bills that have already been incurred by previous legislative action, which was taken by members of both parties, including Republicans throughout the sort of two years when they controlled government in the beginning of the um, Trump administration. The way in which the issue of the debt limit is a little bit linked to the ongoing negotiations over the large 
social spending, soft infrastructure bill, whatever you want to call it, is that one possible way to address the debt limit is through the budget reconciliation process, which is the way that Democrats are trying to move that very large piece of legislation. And that can be done without needing Republican votes. That bill is protected from a filibuster. So basically, what McConnell is trying to do is to push all of the political responsibility for voting to address the debt limit on to Democrats um, by saying you have this opportunity, this mechanism by which you can do this, um, raise the debt limit without um, needing any help from Republicans. And we are going to try and force you to do that. It's all just a giant sort of Gordian knot that needs to be untangled in some way, lest we incur really the massively negative consequences of default. Okay, but so, but explain this to me other than that Mitch McConnell is Mitch McConnell. Why does he want to do this? He does not disagree that there needs to be a continuing resolution, and he doesn't disagree that there needs to be a raise in the debt limit. His disagreement is with Democrats on these other spending packages. What is the reason why he's he wants to force Democrats to link these and at the risk of playing some brinksmanship to do it? Sure. So I think for McConnell, um, it is largely a political calculation. It is largely about the fact that he thinks it, it would be politically costly to to Democrats and politically beneficial to Republicans for um, Democrats to be the ones who have to deliver all of the votes to raise the debt limit, like to be able. Um, I think he thinks that when Republicans run in congressional campaigns next year, um, it is good for them to be able to say Democrats voted to take on this much more national in the national debt. So I think for him, um, it's largely like a political question. I think there are probably some other Republicans who, much like Republicans in 2011, way back a whole 10 years ago, um, when we had our last um, most serious debt limit crisis in the summer of 2011, there were a number of Republicans then who genuinely did not want to vote to raise the debt limit unless there were accompanying large spending cuts. You don't hear that as a major driver of this story. You like haven't seen a kind of coherent if really disingenuous proposal from Republicans about cutting um, spending in order where they're saying, if we did this, then we would be willing to willing to raise the debt limit, which again, is why I think that particularly for McConnell, it's mostly a political calculation. Molly, can I jump in and ask you a question, actually? Sure. So McConnell very famously said early in the Obama presidency that his goal in the Senate was to make Obama a one-term president, which obviously did not work. But I have been thinking about that recently in connection with something that Biden has said, which is that he wants to sort of make the argument for democracy in maybe kind of a Keynesian sense by providing for people, by showing that the Democratic Party through the liberal small d democratic system can, you know, give people the things that they want and that therefore there's no need to sort of turn to far right extremism, essentially. And my impression from reading reporting on this is that the White House has kind of taken the the view that 
we're going to push through a successful, you know, economic infrastructure agenda, and we're going to, you know, move forward in 2022 and 2024 on that. And that's what's going to save the country. Um, So if you combine that with McConnell's sort of obstructionism for obstructionism's sake, it has left me wondering whether, I mean, the Democrats did some of the tying of the knot themselves here, but whether McConnell has an incentive to just snarl things up to make things snarled up and to sort of make it look like, you know, Biden can't get anything done, the Democrats can't get anything done, vote for Republicans instead. That's separate from the question of sort of whether people then turn even farther right in response to that. But it does strike me that that might be a dynamic here. Am I misreading that? No, I think that that's totally plausible. And I think that one thing that's, I think, worth remembering here is that there are different audiences who are being kind of played to here. And that the degree to which what's happening right now with kind of confrontation over the debt limit, I think really is meant or I think McConnell's goal here is to try to set up Republicans who are going to be running next year with a set of things to try and like blame Democrats for. You know, Ben mentioned before um, fights between Republicans and Democrats and fights between Democrats and Democrats. And one of the things that is true of the contemporary Republican Party from a, a policy perspective is that much of their sort of MO on the the policy front is just about stopping things from happening. Um, It's not about sort of making affirmative change. And so the degree to which it really is about just maintaining the status quo and not allowing big uh, sort of legislative change, like that, I think you're right, Quinta, that also gives them an incentive to try and just make it as difficult as possible to get things done. All right. So presumably McConnell's objective here is not actually to default on the debt, uh, which he's never shown any real desire to do, or to shut down the government, which was, you know, has happened in the past and has tended to play badly for Republicans when it does. So what are the off-ramps you alluded to earlier, if we assume that this is like a pre-World War I situation where nobody actually wants to go to war, but there's a kind of a dangerous prisoner's dilemma situation going on. What are the potential off-ramps? Yeah, so one is that Democrats actually do get enough Republicans, they'll need 10 of them, to change their mind uh, in some way between now and the end of the month and vote for Democrats' preferred option here, which is, again, the the temporary spending bill with an increase to the debt limit. One of the things that they have tried to do, or I shouldn't say uh, this is not explicitly in order to try and get Republicans on board, but may have the effect of getting Republicans on board, is one of the things that is expected to be in package with the continuing resolution um, is some uh, disaster relief spending for areas that have been um, hit hard by recent natural disasters, particularly um, hurricanes. And so you saw, for example, that John Kennedy, um, senator from uh, Louisiana, has said that he might be willing to vote for 
a bill that has a debt limit increase in it if it also has um, spending that's really needed in his um, in his state. So that's one possibility. Um, a sort of variant of that possibility is that you get enough Republicans to vote to cut off debate on the bill, but then they vote no on final passage. Um, this is like a sort of too cute by half strategy you hear um, thrown around sometimes. That would be an option. Another option um, for Democrats is to sort of um, take a series of procedural steps on which they might or might not get help from Republicans that would allow them to put um, an increase to the debt limit into the big reconciliation bill that they're working on. One of the biggest challenges with that strategy is that that would mean that the reconciliation bill needs to be done in roughly the next month um, before we get to the point where the debt limit really needs to be addressed. So there's a lot of sort of moving parts here. I remain generally optimistic that we will not default on the debt. Um, but getting from here to there um, does have the potential to be pretty complicated. But if you could get Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders to agree on everything, the problem would go away, right? So if if you could get Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders and all of the parts of the House Democratic Caucus. Um, right. I was embedding the House Democrats yes. within the figures yes. of Joe, Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders. There remains a lot of disagreement among Democrats on sort of what should be in that bill, how big it should be, um, all those sorts of things. But yes, I remain um, skeptical that all of those disagreements will be worked out in time for that bill to be a realistic vehicle for a debt limit increase. So I think they're more likely to have to find a different way to get out of the debt limit part. So if you had to assign a probability to each of the disaster scenarios coming to uh, fruition and are actually either dealing with a shutdown train wreck or a debt limit train wreck. How would you assign probabilities on these? Yeah, so I really do. I really do think the possibility of default on the debt is quite low. I, I I'm not going to take the bait and give you a specific number, but um, I think that is quite low. I think that the possibility of a government shutdown is a little bit higher, but still, I think not especially likely. When we think about sort of recent instances where we have either had a shutdown or have had a, like gotten very close to having a shutdown like within hours they've been related to very specific question like spending questions that people don't want to back down from so obviously the the wall in late 2018 is probably the best um, recent example of this and so I think a shutdown is more likely than actually defaulting on the debt, but I, I do think that the more likely outcome is that like they figure out a way out, just what that is and how we get there is not going to be smooth from here. All right. Uh, one last area that I want to cover is the recent spate of oversight hearings. Uh, Anthony Blinken, the much embattled Secretary of State, found himself last week in front of uh, two, I think, congressional committees, both on the Afghanistan withdrawal. This seems to me to raise a interesting question for Democrats who are running these committees, which is how much time are they realistically going to spend on Afghanistan, which is, after all, an area of probable, at least partial, embarrassment to the Biden administration. So I'm curious, Molly, for your thoughts. Is this, should we understand these hearings as a kind of pro forma exercise that the Democrats went through because you can't 
not when, you know, people are grabbing wheel wells of planes, you can't not do anything on it, but uh, they're not going to let themselves get diverted from January 6th and the matters that they want to be talking about to a protracted set of hearings on Afghanistan, particularly on the mode of withdrawal from Afghanistan rather than the fact of it, which is something that the Biden administration continues to be proud of? Or conversely, is this something that we should expect a sustained uh, period of oversight on, even to the extent that it poses uh, some political risks for the party in power? Yeah, it's a good question. And certainly um, when we look at kind of the history of congressional oversight, we expect that when one or both chambers are controlled by the same party that controls the White House, they will do less vigorous oversight of a same party president. I do think, however, that this particular issue, like we may see Democrats continue to do um, a fair amount of oversight on it. You know, you saw in as the kind of most acute period of the withdrawal was unfolding, um, you saw a lot of criticism from congressional Democrats of a number of different kinds about what the mode of the of the withdrawal. And you, again, have, have since then seen um, some hearings start in Congress. I think it's important to remember that, you know, things like Bob Menendez, who's the, the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, has not always had um, an especially smooth relationship with kind of the Biden foreign policy team on other foreign policy issues, which may um, contribute to his willingness to, you know, push back against um, some of what the the administration has done. So I do think this has the potential to be an exception to some of the prevailing um, trends that we have seen in oversight, but it's hard to know kind of how long it might last. One of the things that I found really interesting about the hearings that have been held on Afghanistan so far is that as you were kind of hinting, Ben, this is potentially like a really good opportunity for Republicans to stick the knife in on a president that they don't like and on a policy, meaning the withdrawal, that they also didn't like and was arguably carried out quite poorly. But a lot of the questions that Republicans ended up asking were just weird. <laughs> For example. So uh, Senator James Risch of Idaho spent most of his time asking Blinken whether an aide had cut off Biden's microphone at a recent speech, which seems to have been a reference to some kind of conspiracy theory. You know, Fox News was talking about it that morning. And I did I did kind of wonder if whether the sort of the extent to which the Republican Party has become more or less totally subsumed in sort of the right wing media ecosystem and talking to itself may actually impede the party's ability to make a coherent attack on the Biden administration, because unless you were watching Fox News that morning, you probably had no idea what Senator Risch was talking about. So that's a dynamic that I'm definitely going to be watching as we go forward on this. Yeah, that struck me as both odd and potentially foreshadowing of how um, some of this might unfold. And that's not to say that like there won't be some serious bipartisan oversight, 
But certainly, and I think this is just a a more general point about congressional hearings in today's media ecosystem, is that they tend to attract that kind of behavior, um, the kind of sort of posturing for the short news clips and are, to the extent that they really ever were a particularly meaningful mechanism for serious oversight, they're less so than they once were. Yeah, I think it's a particular risk in a situation like this where, though there were certainly uh, horror visuals in the fall of Kabul, and there is definitely a viable political attack on the Biden administration and policy attack on the Biden administration, you actually have to do it carefully for it to work because the underlying policy that Biden was implementing, which is one of get out of Afghanistan and damn the torpedoes and, you know, for that matter, damn the collateral consequences of getting out of Afghanistan, which is a policy with which I'm not sympathetic, but the majority of the American people is. And so if you do this attack in the wrong way, you really do risk being on the wrong side of the majority. Or just speaking in a way that the majority can't comprehend at all. So, Quinta, uh, Blinken was not the only uh, senior administration official to testify on national security matters recently. FBI Director Chris Wray uh, testified today as we were recording. I have not yet watched this hearing or or read much about it, but uh, what did he have to say for himself? In my view, the most interesting part of Ray's testimony had to do with what he said about domestic terrorism. And specifically, he used those words to describe the January 6th attack, saying the FBI assesses that the January 6th siege of the Capitol complex demonstrates a willingness by some to use violence against the government in furtherance of their political and social goals. I found that very striking. Just insofar as, you know, eight months after the Capitol riot, we're very much still in a, in a place in this country where the meaning of the riot and how we should understand it is disputed. It's not nothing for the FBI director to kind of come out and say this was domestic terrorism. Um, now, granted, Ben, as you and I have both written and podcasted and complained about, the Bureau really fell flat on its face in that day and Ray still hasn't faced any serious oversight or questions about why that was. But nevertheless, it's still interesting to see him using that language. He also commented that the Bureau's domestic terrorism caseload um, has, and this is his word, exploded, that they've gone from about a thousand investigations in the spring of 2020 to about 2,700 investigations now, and they've doubled the amount of people working on it. So it's pretty clear that the Bureau understands this as a threat and is sort of willing Maybe now that uh, President Trump is no longer Christopher Wray's boss to kind of go to Congress and say, this is really at the forefront of our minds. This is something that we're extremely concerned about and that we continue to be concerned about. Yeah, I note uh, I will be particularly interested to see whether he attributes that explosion in domestic terrorism caseload to rise in incidents of threatened and domestic terrorism, or whether it's merely a reflection of heightened FBI interest. We are going to leave it there. Quinta Jurassic, Molly Reynolds, we will check back with you as these stories develop. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me.
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast, so get on it, people. Share us on all the socials. Leave us a rating or review wherever you found us. Buy our merch at thelawfarestore.com and become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.